Hello, I am Jamie Redfern from A History of Hannibal, and you are listening to the History of World War II podcast with Ray Harris. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. As you know, Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. With over 100,000 titles to choose from, everyone can find something to love. But for now, you can try it out for free and get a free audiobook. Go to audibletrial.com slash ww2 or you can go to my website, worldwar2podcast.net and click on the Audible link. Sign up for a free 30-day trial and get your free audiobook. I have recommendations, of course, but get what you like. After the 30 days, you can select one of the membership plans or you can cancel the membership. But either way, you keep the free audiobook. This time, I would like to recommend Reach for the Sky, the story of Douglas Barter, DSO, DFC, by Paul Brickhill. This is the amazing story of Douglas Barter, who, at age 21, lost his legs in a flying accident in 1931, and he was sure he was never going to fly again. But as World War II breaks out, his experience is needed by a desperate RAF. So he ends up joining Lee Mallory, developing the big wing theory, and leads a lot of young, scared men to fight the Germans, trying to invade Britain. He's eventually captured over occupied France, and the Germans have to remove and take away his ten legs in order to try to stop him from escaping. He never gave up, and he was exactly what Britain needed at the time. It's an amazing story, and I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 57, A Veritable Armada of German Aircraft. By the 5th of September, Coastal Command had reported on the large number of barges and other shipping collecting in the areas between Holland and Le Havre. Added to this was the prediction from the British Air Intelligence that the Luftwaffe could maintain their current offensive intensity for another three weeks or so. Of course, that begged the question, could Fighter Command hang in there at their current level of active defense for that same length of time? The sum total of all this was that something was going to happen, and soon. Downing and Park could feel the change in the air for themselves, and together with Downing's assistant, Evel, they could clearly see the suffering of their pilots. Those men were doing all that was asked of them. Still, despite their courage, they needed rest, and to be rotated out before they broke down. It might have been romantic to think of them giving all they had for king and country and falling asleep in their cockpits, but that would not do Britain any good, especially if the current situation went on longer than predicted. And Dowling could see the time coming when his group commanders might have to choose between keeping his exhausted men in place or sending in raw recruits in their stead. Neither would serve Britain well just as the war was apparently coming to some tipping point. Either finer commands, pilots, and airfields would be used up faster than they can be replaced and repaired, or they would find a way 
to maintain air mastery over southern Britain. Dowding guessed that the Luftwaffe was suffering as well, but that didn't help his situation. As a professional, he had been fighting for resources his whole life, but now the stakes were literally everything, the center of the British Empire. Clearly, something had to change. He needed what he needed to keep British resistance intact. And Downing had been more right about the Luftwaffe than he knew. In late August, Erhard Milch, the deputy air minister under Goering, conducted a five-day tour of northern France and was not enthused about what he found. He discovered alarming equipment deficiencies, replacement pilots were undertrained, and shortages of planes were across the board. He returned to the area for another tour during the first four days of September, and things had only gotten worse. The one saving grace for the Luftwaffe was that, in choosing the time and place of attack, they could focus their battered units, whereas the British had to retain a respectable defense along their eastern, southern, and western coasts. On Thursday, September 5th, the clear weather over southern Britain continued, as did the relentless attacks on all the previously mentioned airfields of Fighter Command. Each time, the attacks were mostly deflected, but the airfields suffered cumulative damage, and each side sustained losses. However, on the 5th, a new wrinkle was added, as the largest raid of the day was reserved not for an airfield, but for the oil storage depot at Thameshaven, on the Essex side of the Thames estuary. There, the bombs found their mark, and the resulting fires could be seen from London, a new site for those living in the capital. The air battles that day were not decisive, but definitely savage. The pilots of each side slid further into their own individual world of exhaustion, and losses for the day were 20 for the RAF and 23 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 526 and 850, respectively. The attacks that night were on a much smaller scale than previously. Still, the Midlands, Wales, and Liverpool were hit. The bombing stopped by 12.30 that night and did not resume until around 4 a.m. A small respite, but a respite nevertheless. Mine lane continued along the east coast. Friday, September 6th, was mostly a repeat of the previous day. Kesselring managed to hit most of the airfields south of London, as well as railroad and water mains, by splitting up his formation into numerous small groups, hoping to overwhelm fighter commands plotters and pilots. But Park's tactic of sending up fewer aircraft for each plot than he could have allowed him and his a reserve to draw on as the invading groups continued coming over. That day, the oil depot at Thameshaven was hit again. This was probably a diversionary tactic, but failed to work as airfields were, for the most part, successfully defended. The aircraft production factory at Brooklands was hit again on the 6th, but damage was slight. That day, as parties searched around the airfields for wounded pilots and German spies, one group decided to go along an unused road north 
of the Kenley Airfield. There the houses were secluded, but in the garden of one of the empty houses, the search party found what they hoped they would not. Lying there was the body of Patrick Wood Scowen. Apparently, his parachute failed to open. Bunny, the young girl Patrick and Tony had battled over, mourned the losses with the men's father. Several months after this death, she joined the WAAF. She was just 19 years old. That afternoon, around 5.30 p.m., a German soldier, dressed in civilian clothes, was captured near a fighter command airfield. He had parachuted down around 3 a.m. that morning, but hurt himself by landing on his wireless set. His mission was to report on the extent of damage on surrounding airfields. To the War Cabinet, this incident was just one more indication that something was coming. That day, the fighting was fierce, with the many small formations coming over and Fighter Command trying to keep the Germans from their airfields. Losses for the day were 23 for the RAF and 35 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 549 and 885, respectively. That night, raids were lighter, like the previous night, but damage was extensive as many small or single bombers were sent out. The next day, Saturday, September 7th, the weather was fair with some haze, as was typical, but there was something else in the air, and although unknown, could not bode well for the defenders. That morning, the Air Ministry issued Invasion Alert Number 1 to its commands. This warning meant that an attack should be considered imminent. Early that morning, Park had left for Bentley Priory for a meeting with Downing and his deputy, Evel. Park had already made his dispositions and felt good about the situation with Levin Group, specifically his instruction number 12, which discussed his view that too many German bombers were getting through and only attacked after their bomb run. The problem was that as the bombers came in and the British fighters were sent to intercept, the defending pilots added a few thousand feet to whatever information they were given. So the German bombers were able to slip in underneath them. Meanwhile, high above, the British and German fighters played a game of who goes first. If the British dove to attack the bombers, the German escorts would then dive on them. Park understood this, but needed the bombers attacked and hopefully interfered with before they made their targets. During that late morning, there occurred three clashes, and at first glance, all three seemed to portend serious consequences over this third and final phase of the Battle of Britain. But in the end, only one would have lingering effects, and that one would change the course of the entire war in the West. First, Downing, Park, and Evel were meeting with Sholto Douglas, the deputy of the air staff, about the current state of fighter command, particularly 11 Group. With all that had happened to fighter command, their struggles being relentlessly attacked, and the resulting conditions of the pilot's strength, mental and physical, Downing was here today to state 
that fighter command was about to enter a phase of going downhill. He wanted to talk things out and make a clear path to minimize this falling off phase and to get his group commands back into fighting trim as quickly as possible. Park and Evel were there to back him up. Evel's analysis showed that fighter command was losing pilots faster than they could be replaced, and many of those replacements were untrained, which meant they would probably be lost faster than the men they had just replaced. If this kept up, by the time the invasion started, Fighter Command would not have the means to defend their airfields, the coasts, and any areas where the Germans managed to land, despite losses suffered on the voyage over. If the Germans managed to disembark a certain number of panzers on British soil, the very least of consequences would be massive destruction and disruption. And who knew where that could lead? Dowling opened the meeting aggressively by stating that Evel's report was correct, and he had a plan for seeing them through. Douglas had already heard some of this before, but the most he had agreed to was to retrain a certain percentage of the pilots before being sent to 11 Group as replacements. But that wasn't enough to suit Downing then, and it wouldn't do now. He was in a combative mood, and it showed in the minutes of the meeting. He then launched himself into his plan. He proposed creating squadrons to be labeled A, B, and C. The A squadrons were those of 11 Group, and a few from 10 and 12 Group. These pilots had been fighting for some time, and had the experience to meet the Luftwaffe pilots on an even footing. He went on to say that B squadrons would be so designated because only 10 of their 16 pilots were operational. And lastly, C squadrons would be determined by only having three operational or trained and experienced pilots within their unit. The idea was for the pilots who had gone through training but as yet had no experience were to be sent north to 13 Group. That would free up the trained and experienced pilots there to head south to serve as replacements. This way, the new pilots had a chance to learn updated fighting tactics from the three experienced pilots in their squadron, while leaving Park with only operational pilots to defend the probable invasion areas. Douglas, as the deputy air minister, for his part, thought all this was an overreaction by Downing, and his followers. He, Douglas, was doing all he could to get the pilots through operational training as fast as he could. But for Downing, that wasn't the point. Those men were not ready to take on ME-109s and would get bounced. It was a waste of time and planes to give him these men. Moreover, if pilot deaths kept increasing, morale would suffer, and that was the one area so far not to feel the effects of Kesselring's pressure. Then the meeting ended, and Downing walked away with his new designations, and Douglas promised to look into some other proposals. The next day, Douglas read the minutes of the meeting, and it seemed to him that any future blame or failure could be laid at his feet. He did not like these tactics of Downing and his followers. But Douglas would get his revenge.
the second clash that morning was when Garing arrived in Calais on his personal train, Asia, and met with Kesselring, Sperla, and others. The Reich Marshal had come to take personal command of the battle with Britain from now on. He started the meeting with berating the officers and top fighter pilots, who were also in attendance, for failing to destroy fighter command and allowing heavy losses of their bombers. But then he changed his demeanor and smiled and told them that he was here to help and to put the war back on track. He then had case after case of wine unloaded from his train and told all that today would be something to celebrate. Today was going to be something special, and it made him laugh to think that Fighter Command had no idea what was about to happen. He then met with some of the other pilots who would fly today to boost their morale, just to make sure that they remembered he was once a fighter pilot himself. He tried to jump into the cockpit of one ME-109, but was unable to fit in the narrow seat. The men's morale was lifted, if through laughter instead of all. Next, Garing and the Luftwaffe leaders took their wine to the clifftops to watch today's show. And finally, the third clash ended up serving as a preface for the one just mentioned, the one that would affect the rest of the war. Small German formations of bombers and fighters were sent over the channel that morning near Lim, Dover, and Hawkinge. The last two locations were actually attacked, but mostly the German thrusts north were diversionary. The main attack, Garing Surprise, would be launched that afternoon. So a little after 3 p.m., Garing and his subordinates watched from a hilltop as wave after wave after wave of German aircraft flew overhead. The operation, due to its size, had to be given a name, and that was easy to come up with. Loge, and it would be used to describe London throughout their struggle. Loge meant God of Fire, and the British would come to believe that they had been visited by this destructive deity. The Reich Marshal was impressed, as they all were, with the sight and sounds overhead. Never had such a fleet been collected. To be sure, the air leader had hoped it wouldn't come to this, but as long as it worked, and quickly, he could live with it. The action had died down over the channel late that morning, but at 3.54 that afternoon, a waft at Bentley Priory put a hostile counter on her board. The plotters, checking each other's work, could only determine that it was a big one. They had never seen anything like this before on their screens. At 4.16 p.m., Observer Corps were able to help out by reporting in that many hundreds of planes could be seen. In fact, there were 348 bombers with 617 ME-109s and 110s, all formed up together between 14 and 23,000 feet. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level 
by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. With the confirmation from the Observer Corps, the plotters now had to figure out which airfields they were going to raid. But with a formation of this size, it was possible that every airfield was going to be simultaneously attacked. So, 21 squadrons, every one of them within 70 miles of London, were put into the air or at readiness. The ones in the air covered the sector stations, as well as the Thameshaven oil refinery. This is exactly what the Luftwaffe wanted. The British were expecting, based on past activities, for this larger-than-normal formation to split and go after predetermined targets. So Fighter Command prudently covered their airfields. Because of this defensive posture, very few squadrons interacted with the German formation before they reached their target. That's because the German aircraft did not split. They stayed together and continued to fly up the Thames estuary. For the British, the first squadrons to meet up with this wall of German air power were 602 and 43 squadrons. They had flown in together per Park's orders for squadrons to pair up and have the Hurricanes go after the bombers while the Spitfires went after the escorting Messerschmitts. When Sandy Johnstone emerged from the cloud cover to visually confirm the enemy, he said, stunned, quote, Ahead and above, a veritable armada of German aircraft, Staffel after Staffel, as far as the eye could see. Unquote. Still, following procedures, three of their aircraft rose to give challenge to the 600 odd German fighters, while the remaining six went after the 300 or so bombers. The Luftwaffe's tactics had worked perfectly. The mass of fighter command was circling around airfields, while the bulk of German air power headed, almost uncontested, towards London. Plotters, still confused or overwhelmed by what they saw on their screens, gave other squadrons already in the air dodgy coordinates, so those fighters had no real chance of deflecting the approaching mass. The bombers of the Luftwaffe soon began their bomb run, on Docklands, from Rotherhithe to Tower Bridge. The damage and resulting fires amazed even the German pilots. Surely nothing or no one could have survived below. 
By 5.45 p.m., the Luftwaffe was on their way home, and dusk came early to the British capital's east end, as the smoke from the numerous fires blocked out the sun. Lee Mallory, the leader of 12 Group, like so many others, slowly figured out the Luftwaffe's true target, and then he saw his chance to try out his big-wing theory. Led by Douglas Botter, Hurricane Squadrons of 242 and 302, along with 19 Spitfire Squadron, were activated, but still waiting. However, 11 Group, as was standard, only asked for help when the situation became clearly more than they could handle, and they were equally caught off guard. Barter, anxious, knew that one major criticism of the Big Wing Theory was the time it took for several squadrons to form up, and wanting his chance to disprove this theory, as well as helping with the situation, decided to take off with his squadron, before being cleared to do so. His solution was to head for a place the Germans had to fly through to make it home, but at a slow enough pace to allow his other squadrons to catch up to him a little later. In a perfect world, the big wing was supposed to smash apart a large German formation and let other single squadrons clean up the mess. But it wasn't going to happen today, or frankly, any other day. The Big Wing never really did get its chance to demonstrate what it can do. Barter's reinforcements were called on too late, and then bounced before they could get the height needed to threaten the German bombers. Fortunately, due to their experience and Barter's leadership, comparatively few were lost. As Fighter Command realized its mistake, their only option now was to react to the new tactical situation. So the British squadrons were being directed to make for a point in front of the German air armada heading home. As the raiders were over the Isle of Sheppey, heading southeast, British fighters intercepted them, and more than 1,000 planes were within the same relative area for the first time in history. And Kesselring, still trying to win this fight outright, got what he wanted, a large dogfight between the fighters. In fact, only 13 German bombers were shot down that day. The other German casualties were, like all of the British ones, fighters. For themselves, the British lost the same number of fighters as did the Germans, along with six pilots, and had seven more injured. But this loss of skilled pilots was the last thing Dowding needed given the current state of fighter command. Losses for the day were 25 for the RAF and 37 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 574 and 922, respectively. But the day was not over. A little after 8 p.m., a second massive wave came over and made for London again. This time, they had the raging fires for a reference, so the same docks and east end area were their targets. But now that it was dark, all fighter command had to combat this attack was a few Blemens and some searchlights, far from an adequate defense. Attacks on London went on for the next eight hours, 
wave after wave, and didn't end until 5 a.m. Not long into it, the firemen below gave up on trying to control the situation and just focused on saving people and what valuables they could. Of course, in a time of war, the definition of what is valuable changes. But the men did what they could and then watched the fires blaze away and gut their local communities. Fighter Command's airfields may have been spared that day, but Liverpool was not that night, nor was South Wales. There, the attacks were much smaller, but that probably meant little to the bomb-weary people below. By the morning of September 8th, the damage to industrial areas, as well as important dock facilities, was complete. The Siemens Brothers Works, the Harlan and Wolfs Factory, the Anglo-American Oil Works, and the Gas Works at Beckton were severely damaged. As for the docks, the parts owned by East India, West India, Surrey Commercial, and Millwall suffered from the fires that burned through the night. In between the first and second large raids, Parks flew over the east end and saw the damage for himself. He could only imagine the loss and suffering of the civilians below. He guessed that this was how the war would be from now on, until the invasion. His heart must have went out to the people, but he could not deny the fact that his airfields would now be spared. Putting his grief and relief aside, he logically planned out how best to use the reprieve his airfields and pilots would be getting, as the Londoners suffered. When he landed, Park got a call from the Prime Minister that there had been an invasion alert, but Churchill did not put much stock in it. Neither did Park. Park then heard from the Air Ministry to be prepared to abandon his airfields south of London. Park didn't say anything to the person on the other end, but wondered why he was expected to do with a single order what Kesselring had been trying to do with bombs. But it was a moot point. Soon things calmed down. That morning, Sunday, September 8th, Park and Downing met and found that they were of the same mind in that they both thought London would be the Luftwaffe's target from now on. Both men were openly relieved that the pressure would be off their airfields, but now they needed a plan to relieve the pressure off their men who still had to defend London. Their primary goal was to figure out how to reduce losses in the air. For Downing, the war was far from over, and he planned on fighting it the way he saw it, as a war of attrition. He would continue to fight as long as Nazi Germany desired to invade Britain. It would be ugly and drawn out, but he felt confident that Hitler would give up getting his men killed before British pilots would stop giving up their lives to keep their homeland safe. But what Downing nor Park could know was that Kesselring had been on a timetable, and he still was. To the leader of Luftlot II, this was just another phase of the war. Since fighter command could not be broken in the time needed for sea line, then the war, now on civilians, would be made so severe that they would soon want an end to it. And if that didn't work, 
Then this phase was just the next phase of a larger economic war against the British Isle. So, Dowling started making moves. Two experienced squadrons, 43 of Tangmere and 111 of Croydon, were downgraded to sea units so they could move up north and share their experience and knowledge with the new pilots. Dowling hated doing it, but the long haul had to be prepared for. The other move revolved around the realization that if London was to be bombed and the German fighters were only to serve as escorts from now on, the defenders needed to be the faster-climbing Spitfires. So 79 Hurricane Squadron was pulled out of Biggin Hill and replaced with the mostly untried 92 Spitfire Squadron. They had a reputation as being unusual, but if they could get the job done, they could be as colorful as they liked. The skies over Britain would not see much action during that Sunday, mostly due to the weather. It clouded up as the day went on, and the majority of the German pilots now resting would be over London again that night. Still, fighter command could not be allowed to rest, so, after reconnaissance flights over London, a formation of about a 100 bombers and fighters crossed the channel. The bulk of this group harassed the Kentish coast districts, but a small group of about 20 of them then split off and bombed East London. Park had squadrons go up in pairs, with the Hurricanes focused on the bombers and the Spitfires engaging their escorts, and the British defenders gave better than they got. But the weather also caused a few casualties for the Germans. And by 1 p.m., the raiders were heading home. Around noon that day, Churchill visited the docks and the East End with his brother Jack and his chief of staff, Lord Ismay. It wasn't long before they came upon a scene more horrible than what they had witnessed so far. A bomb shelter had suffered a direct hit, and 40 people were instantly killed. Seeing this, Churchill lost his composure and started crying. He had the car stop and got out to examine the situation more closely. He looked around, waved to the people, and got back in the car. But the rest of the ride was a blur for the Prime Minister. Later, Ismay wrote to his superior, They stormed you as you got out of the car with cries of, It was good of you to come, Winnie. We thought you'd come. We can take it. Ismay then wrote, He heard an old woman saying, You see, he really cares. He's crying. The second daytime attack came around 7.30 p.m., it was directed at London and consisted of about 30 aircraft. Again, fighter command responded with paired squadrons, and again, the Germans got the worst of it. After the bombers departed, two Luftwaffe reconnaissance flights were sent over London. They managed to make it home unharmed, and Downing guessed that whatever information they collected would affect the coming attacks that night. Losses for the day were two for the RAF and 15 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 576 and 937, respectively. The darkness brought back the German bombers, 
207 in all. And 207 may not be a massive number, but when the bombers are safe on their approach and have fires below to guide them, their bomb load can have devastating consequences. And they did. The docks were again their target, but two hospitals and a shelter in Islington were hit as well. They came over wave after wave and stayed at it past their normal stopping time of 5 a.m. By then, the coming sunlight would be enough for the British fighters to locate and engage their tormentors. By morning, at least 412 civilians were found dead, with another 747 more injured. Next time, Park will prove himself Kesselring's master of air combat, as German casualties mount. This will cause Kesselring to need a decision from Hitler soon, if Operation Sea Line is to go forward. But then the weather stymies German intentions, until it is decided to launch an attack so massive as to finally break fighter command, as well as the spirit to resist by the civilian population. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, before we wrap up, I just want to thank um, some people for their donations. I haven't done it in a while, and the list is growing, and I just feel that I owe it to them. And again, I'm very appreciative because it's helping me a lot. So here are the people I would like to thank. Uh, Micah M. from Illinois in the USA. Greg U. from Edinburgh in the UK. Ryan K. from Fairfax, Virginia. Michael D., from Jensen Beach, Florida. Kelly P. from Lone Park, California. And I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Anthony P. of Ontario, Canada. Um, Prashant H. from New Delhi, India. Charles K. from Wheaton, Illinois. Oscar G. from Glenside, Pennsylvania. Brett M. from Winnipeg, Canada. Andrew E. from Northumberland, UK. Malcolm C. from Charnwood, Australia, and Ann B., not sure where she's from, and Lars H. from Norway. So again, thank you very much. It really does make a huge difference here. Um, there's a lot of books in North Africa and what happened in Greece and on the seas, and I'm trying to get those as fast as I can to keep this going. We are almost finished with the Battle of Britain. Um, just a couple more episodes. Uh, we all know what happens in September, even though the bombing goes on, so I'll try to wrap it up and move on from there. So I appreciate your patience. For those of you who want the story to get going, and uh, for those of you who enjoyed the Battle of Britain and its detail, um, so thank you to one, and I'm sorry to the other. Also, thank you for the emails that you have sent. I really do appreciate the information and the encouragement. Um, I will see you soon with episode number 58. Take care, everyone. <laughs>